excuse me, when we talk about God's graciousness and his ability to work in our lives, just as a, an aside, I would sometime today look at uh, who the flowers are given in honor of, Gavin and Gabriella. I think through the wisdom given to doctors and particularly the, the hand of the Lord in their lives, they are here with us and they are precious not only for us, but certainly to the Lord. So let's pray today. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you on this day that we might be reminded of your call upon our hearts, that this call is for today. It is for now. We are to act when you prompt us. We are to proclaim the gospel when we have the opportunity, and not to put it aside, but to know the urgency and the permanence of this call, to know the grace that is available only through Christ. And this gospel which has been entrusted to us to present, for we are unworthy of it, but yet you have entrusted it to us. It is the power of God unto salvation. Remind us of this today, Lord, that we might act today and not tomorrow. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is Reformation Sunday, an important day for those churches that trace their theological heritage back through the time of the Reformation, whether it is a Lutheran or Calvin or Zwingli or Baptist, they all kind of, or the variety of many others, they all kind of run through that time at the Reformation. And as I have done in the past, I have done um, sermons by others on Reformation Sunday, kind of sermons of historical significance. Um, so I don't want you to think that this is my sermon, yet I have preached this sermon of my own creation. But this is a sermon uh, that is probably the most famous sermon in Pennsylvania. How about that? Okay. Uh, it is one that I think almost every Presbyterian in Pennsylvania has preached at some point, uh, not word for word, but uh, certainly on the topic and the theme which comes from the writings of Paul to Timothy come before winter. Today I give you a slightly edited version of the original, which was written by Clarence Edward Noble McCartney. Now let me give you a little bit of history on Reverend McCartney. He was one of the main leaders of the conservatives during the fundamentalist modernist controversy back in the 20s in the Presbyterian Church. In 1914, he accepted a call to Arch Street Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, where he first preached this exact sermon. In time, he began broadcasting his sermons on radio and eventually uh, began to uh, be known as one of the best preachers in the Philadelphia area and, and also to teach once a week in homiletics that is preaching at Princeton Theological Seminary. In 1919, McCartney first began engaged with an exchange with Harry Emerson Fosdick, who was a Presbyterian preacher in New York. And Fosdick argued that those soldiers returning in World War I from the battlefield would not be able to accept the traditional doctrines and standards that the church had held for below these many centuries, and that the church needed to adjust according to the spirit of the age. Well, in response to that, McCartney argued that the Christian truth was unchanging, had no need to adjust, it was eternal truth. Well, this, in 1919, was merely the preface to the famous conflict that began in 1922 between Harry Emerson Fosdick, 
who distributed his famous and controversial sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? McCartney first responded with another sermon that said, Shall Unbelief Win? Now, when we talk about responded with a sermon, it's not as if they just preached it in one church and one church over here. What had happened was the New York Times was publishing these sermons. Okay? Now, when was the last time the New York Times published a sermon? Okay? Yeah, probably 1920s. <laughs> Sorry, okay. Um, so Fosdick pre- preached the sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? McCartney responded with, Shall Unbelief Win? And this exchange set off what became known as the fundamentalist modernist controversy within the Presbyterian Church. And then the more widely known Princetonian theologian J. Gresham Machen got involved and things went as, as ballistic as they could at that time. Now, alarmed by Fosdick's rejection of the Christian orthodoxy, McCartney and Great and Machen really argued before the Presbytery to silence Fosdick. And in 1923, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church did exactly that. But just a few years later, they changed their mind and they sided with Fosdick and the modernist, which would today be liberalism. And I believe the Presbyterian denomination has never recovered since. So from 1927 to 1953, McCartney took up a new pastorate. He left Arch Street Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia and became the pastor at the First Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. While there, he authored more than 20 books and pamphlets, and every October for 26 years, he, on one of those Sundays, he would preach the same sermon. And it is this sermon. Paul says in the second letter of Timothy in the fourth chapter, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. Do thy diligence to come before winter. Napoleon Bonaparte and the Apostle Paul are probably the most two famous prisoners of history. One was in prison because the peace of the world demanded it. The other because he sought to give men that peace which the world cannot give and which the world cannot take away. One had the recollection of cities and homes which had been wasted and devastated, and the other had the recollection of homes and cities and nations that had been blessed by his presence and cheered by the message of the gospel that he delivered. One had shed rivers of blood upon which to float his ambitions. The only blood the other had shed was that which flowed from his own wounds for the cause of Christ. One could trace his path to glory by ghastly trails of the dead, which stretched from the Pyrenees to Moscow and from the pyramids to Mount Tabor. The other could trace his path to prison, death, and immortal glory by the hearts that he had loved and the souls that had been gathered into the kingdom of God through his obedience. Napoleon once said, I love nobody, not even my own brothers. Is it not strange, therefore, that at the end of his life on his rock prison in the South Atlantic, he said, I wonder if there is anyone in the world who loves me. Now, Paul loved all men. His heart was the heart of the world. And from his lonely prison in Rome, he sent out a message which glow and and with with a love that is unquenchable and throb with a, a fadeless hope. And that is the things of Christ. When a man enters the straits of life, he is fortunate if he has a few friends upon whom he can count to the utmost. Paul had three such friends. The first of these, whose name needs no mention, was the one who would be the friend of every man, the friend who laid down his life for us all. 
The second was that man whose face we see at the beginning and the end of life so often, the beloved physician, Luke. He calls him Luke. He says, only Luke is with me at this point. And then the third of these friends was the Lyconian youth, Timothy, half Hebrew and half Greek, whom Paul affectionately called my son in the faith. When Paul had been stoned by the mob at Lystra in the highlands of Asia Minor and was dragged out of the city gates and left for dead, perhaps it was Timothy who, when the night had come down and the passions of the mob had subsided, went out of the city gates to search amidst the stones and rubbish until he found the wounded and bleeding body of Paul and putting his arm around the apostle's neck, wiped the blood from his face and poured the cordial down his lips and took him home to the house of his godly grandmother or godly mother. If you form a friendship in a shipwreck, you never forget the friend. The hammer of adversity wields human hearts into an indissoluble amalgamation. Paul and Timothy each had in the other a friend who was born of adversity. Paul's last letter to this, his dearest of friends, Timothy, whom he had left in charge of the far-off church in Ephesus, he tells Timothy that he wants him to come and be with him in Rome. He is to stop at Troas on the way and pick up his books and bring his cloak too, which Paul had left in the house of Carpus in Troas. This is the only robe that Paul possesses. It has been wet with the brine of the Mediterranean, white with the snows of Galatia, yellow with the dust of the Ignatian Way, and crimson with his own blood from the wounds he had had for the sake of Christ. It is getting cold at Rome, for the summer is waning, and Paul wants his robe to keep him warm. But most of all, Paul wants Timothy to bring himself. Do thy diligence to come unto me shortly, he writes. And then, just before the close of the letter, he says... Come before winter. Now, why before winter? Because when winter set in in the season, the season for navigation was closed in the Mediterranean. It was dangerous for ships to venture out to sea. And if Timothy waits until winter, he will have to wait until spring. And Paul has had a premonition that he will not be alive by spring. He says, the time of my departure is at hand. Now, we like to think that Timothy did not wait a single day, for when that letter from Paul arrived and reached him at Ephesus, he started at once to Troas, where he picked up the books and the old cloak at the house of Carpus, and then sailed past Samothrace to Neapolis, and thence traveled to the Ignatian Way across the plains of Philippi, and through Macedonia to the Adriatic, where he took a ship to Brundisimium, and then went on the Appian Way to Rome where he found Paul in prison and read to him from those scrolls of the Old Testament and wrote his last letters and walked to him to the place of his execution near the pyramid of Cestius and saw him receive his crown of glory. Before winter or never, there are some things which will never be done unless they are done before winter. The winter will come and the winter will pass and the flowers of the springtime will deck the breast of the earth and the graves of some of our opportunities. Perhaps they will even deck the graves of some of our best friends. There are golden gates wide open on this autumn day, but next October they will be forever shut. There are tides of opportunity running now at the flood. Next October they will be at the ebb. There are voices speaking today, which a year from today they will not be able to be heard. It is before winter, 
or it is never. How quickly the autumn passes. It is the perfect parable of all that fades. Tomorrow the rain will fall and the winds will blow and the trees will be stripped and barren of their leaves. Therefore, every returning autumn brings home to me the sense of the preciousness of life's opportunities. It is their beauty, it is also their brevity. It fills me with the desire to say not merely something about the way that leads to life eternal, but with the help of God, something which shall move men to take the way of life now, today. Come before winter. Let us listen to some of those voices which are now speaking so earnestly to us and which a year from today may be forever silent. The voice which calls us for reformation. Now, your character can be amended and improved, but not just at any time. There are favorable seasons. In the town of my boyhood, I delighted to watch on a winter's night the streams of molten metal writhing and twisting like lost spirits as they poured from the furnaces of the wire mill. Before the furnace doors stood men in leather aprons and their iron tongs in their hands, ready to seize the fiery coils and direct them into the molds. But if the iron was permitted to cool below a certain temperature, it refused the mold. There are times when life's metal is, as it were, molten and can be worked into any design. But if it is permitted to cool, it tends toward a state of fixation in which it is possible neither to do nor even to plan a good work. When the angel came down to trouble the pool at Jerusalem, then there was the time for the sick to step into the water and be healed. There are moments when the pool of our lives is troubled by the angel of opportunity. Then a man, if he will, can go down and be made whole. If he waits until the waters are still, it will be too late. For too many a man, there comes the hour when destiny knocks at his door, and the angel waits to see whether he will obey or will he reject him. These are precious and critical moments in the history of our souls. In your life, there may be that which you know to be wrong and sinful. In the mercy of God, if it has awakened your conscience or has flooded your heart with a sudden wave of contrition and sorrow, this is the hour of opportunity, for now the chains of evil habits can be broken which, if not broken, will bind us forever. Now is the moment to make those decisions which shall affect our destiny forever. We must come before winter. There is the voice of friendship and affection that calls us. Suppose that Timothy, when he received the letter from Paul asking him to come before winter, said to himself, Yes, I shall start for Rome, but first of all, I must clear up some matters here at Ephesus. And then I will go down to Meletus to ordain the elders there and then over to Colossae to, to have communion there. And when, after he had attended these matters, he starts for Troas and there are inquiries when he can get a ship that will carry him across the Mediterranean to Italy. Or is there one that is sailing around Greece? And he is told that the season for navigation is over and that no vessel will sail until the springtime. No ships for Italy until April, Timothy says? All through that anxious winter, we can imagine Timothy reproaching himself that he did not go at once when he received Paul's letter and wondering how it fares with his spiritual father. When the first vessel sails in the springtime, Timothy is a passenger on it. I can see him landing at Neapolis and hurrying up to Rome. There he seeks out Paul's prison only to be cursed and repulsed by the guards. 
Then he goes to the house of Claudia or Pudens or Narcissus or Mary or Ampliatus and asks where he can find Paul. And I can hear them say, are you Timothy? Don't you know that Paul was beheaded last December? And every time the jailer would put the key into the door of his cell, Paul thought that was you coming to see him. His last message was for you. Give my love to Timothy, my beloved son in the faith, when he comes. How Timothy then must have wished that he had come before winter. Before winter or never. Jesus says, the poor you will always have with me, but you will always have with you, but me you will not always have. That is true of all the friends that we love. We cannot name them now, but next winter we shall know their names. With them, as far as our ministry is concerned, it will be winter or never. In the church at the cemetery of Haddington, England, one can read over the grave of Jane Welsh, the first of many pathetic and regretful tributes paid by Thomas Carlyle to his neglected wife. For 40 years, she was a true and loving helpmate of her husband, and by act and word worthily forwarded him as none else could in all things he did or attempted. She died at London on the 21st of April, 1866, suddenly snatched from him and the light of his life as if gone out. It has been said that the saddest sentence in all of English literature is that sentence which Carlyle in his diary wrote, Oh, that I had you yet for five minutes by my side, that I might tell you all. Hear then, careless soul, you who are dealing with loved ones as if you would have them forever beside you, these solemn words of warning from Carlyle, cherish what is dearest while you have it near you. Wait not till it is far away. Blind and deaf that we are, oh, think if thou yet love anybody living. Wait not till death comes upon them to think how much they mean to you when it would be too late. Speak to them now of their worth and of your love for them. On one occasion, when I preached this sermon in text in Philadelphia, there was present at the service a student of Jefferson Medical College. When that service was over, he went to his room on Art Street, where he kept, uh, the text kept repeating itself over and over in his mind, come before winter. Perhaps, he thought to himself, I had better write a letter to my mother. So he sat down and wrote a letter such as a mother delights to receive from her son. He took the letter down to the street and dropped it in the mailbox and returned to his room. The next day, in the midst of his studies, a telegram arrived saying that your mother is dying. Come home at once. He took the train that night for Pittsburgh and then another train to the town near the farm where his home was. Arriving at the town, he was driven to the farm and hurrying up the stairs, he found his mother in bed but still alive with a smile of recognition and satisfaction on her face. The smile which, if a man has seen once, he can never forget. Under her pillow was the letter he had written her after the Sunday night service. The next time he met me in Philadelphia, he said, I am glad you preached that sermon. Come before winter. Now twice, coming to the sleeping disciples whom he had asked to watch with him at the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ awakened them and said with sad surprise, what, could you not watch with me for one hour? When he came the third time and found them sleeping, he sadly looked down and said, sleep now and take your rest. One of those three, James, was the first of the twelve apostles to die for Christ and seal his fate with his own heart's blood. Another, John, was to suffer imprisonment for the sake of Christ on the isle that was Patmos. 
And then Peter was to be crucified for the sake of Christ. But never again could those three sleeping disciples watch with Jesus in his hour of agony. That opportunity was gone forever. You say when you hear that a friend has gone, why? It can't be possible. I saw him yesterday only on Stanwick and 6th Avenue. But you will never see him there again. You say you intend to do this thing, to speak this word of appreciation or to show this act of kindness, but now the vacant chair, that empty place, will speak to you with a reproach that your heart can hardly endure. It is now, before winter, or it is never. The voice of Christ calls to us as well. More eager, more wistful, more tender than any other voice is the voice of Christ, which now I hear calling men to come to him to come before winter. I wish I had been there when Christ called his disciples. Andrew and Peter and James and John by the Sea of Galilee. There must have been a note not only of love and authority, but of immediacy and urgency, for they dropped whatever they were doing and followed him. The greatest subject which can engage the mind and attention of man is eternal life. Hence the Holy Spirit, when he invites men to come to Christ, never says tomorrow... But it is always today. If you can find me one place in the Bible where the Holy Spirit says, Believe in Christ tomorrow, then I will come out of this pulpit and never return. For the gospel is gone. But the Spirit always says, Today. It never says tomorrow. Now is the accepted accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear my voice, harden not your hearts. The reason for this urgency is twofold. First, it is the uncertainty of human life. A long time ago, David said to his beloved friend Jonathan, As thy soul liveth, there is but a step between me and death. That is true for every one of us. There is but a step between us and death. An old rabbi used to say to his people, Repent the day before you die. But they said to him, Rabbi, we do not know the day of our death. Then he answered, Repent today. The second reason why Christ, when he calls a man, always says today and never tomorrow, is that tomorrow the disposition of a man's heart may have changed. There's a time to plant and a time to reap. The heart is like the soil. It has its favorable seasons. Speak to my brother now. His heart is tender now, a man once said to me, considering his brother, who was not a believer. Today a man may hear this sermon and be interested and impressed and almost persuaded, ready to take his stand for Christ and enter into eternal life. But he postpones his decision and says, not tonight, perhaps tomorrow. A week hence, a month hence, a year hence, he may come back and hear the same call of repentance and faith. But it has absolutely no effect upon him, for his heart is as cold as marble and the preacher might as well be preaching to stone or to pavement. Oh, if the story of this one church could be told, if the stone should cry out of the wall, if the beam out of the timber should answer, what a story they could tell of those who once were almost persuaded, but who now are far from the kingdom of God. Christ said, today, and they answered, tomorrow. Once again, then, I repeat the words of the apostle, come before winter. And as I pronounce them, common sense, experience, conscience, scripture, and the Holy Spirit, the souls of just men made perfect, and the Lord Jesus Christ all repeat with me, come before winter. Come before the haze of Indian summer has faded from the fields. 
come before the November wind strips the leaves from the trees and sends them whirling over the fields. Come before the snow lies on the uplands and the meadow brook is turned to ice. Come before the heart is cold. Come before the desire has failed. Come before life is over and your probation ended and you stand before God to give an account of this life and how you have used it and how you have made use of the opportunities in which his grace has been granted to you. Come before winter. Come today and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let us pray. Our gracious Lord, the call is to come today to leave those things now and act upon the Holy Spirit in our hearts today. To say those things to the ones that we love, to say them today, to not put them off, to speak those words of love and encouragement to those around us today and not to say platitudes and things nice when they are gone, to say the things our hearts feel today. There's also the call to come before winter to change our lives. There are things in our lives, Lord, that today, because the metal is hot and molted, can be changed, can be affected. And you have laid them upon our hearts. Perhaps they are things within our own personalities. Perhaps they are things that we do or attitudes that we hold. But we must come before winter and change them now as you speak to us, as the Holy Spirit has enlivened us and opened our eyes to them, that we must put them aside. And also, Lord, it is the call of Christ to come before winter for those whose hearts have not been changed by the things of Christ as of yet, that they would hear your voice today, that their heart would be melted, that their defenses would be gone, that they would know it is you who calls them by name and says, come unto me. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ today. Receive him as your Lord and Savior. You will be forever changed. Come before winter. The day of salvation is not tomorrow. It is today. In fact, the day of salvation is not this afternoon. It is now. Come and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior that you might proclaim him to be the only Son of God that your sins might be forgiven, that you might be washed in his blood and know the newness of life. Come today before the winter comes. Lord, speak to our hearts today and break us if necessary. For there are things that we hold on to that we need to let go of today before the winter comes. Open our eyes to these things we might proclaim and profess Jesus Christ today. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.